let's, uh, let's bring our hearts together back to this place. You know, whether you're traveling halfway across the country, around the world, or just from your home here, sometimes it takes a while for us to, to bring our awareness, bring ourselves fully present into this place. So let's do this today by praying the Lord's Prayer together. Uh, and as we prepare to do that, let's just take a few minutes or a few moments and just quiet ourselves prepare to listen, prepare to receive. And let's pray together. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's good to be back. Although in some ways, for me, it's easier to feel like I never left having Jordan and Colton and Josie and the different kids from the, the GSG ministry there, um, having Terry come down and join us in Mexico and build, is that we felt connected the entire time that we traveled through the West and then built the home in Mexico. But it is good to be back here this morning. Uh, welcome to everybody. As Alex said, my name is John Ray. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Church. And we're glad you're here physically. We're glad you're here listening if you're on the podcast. And uh, we encourage you throughout the week to further engage by using the learning guide that we produce every week that will give insight and application and also expand on the ideas that we talk about. Because especially on a day like today where, y'all, you just get prepared. I've got like 16 pages of notes. It's nuts what we got to cover today. Um, there's no way we're going to cover it all in the brief time that we have during this, and there's, there's going to be a lot that comes out of it, so engage with your community groups, your grace groups, engage in your personal studies around this material. Now, I got to tell you, I wasn't a very athletic kid. I was skinny. I was uncoordinated. I didn't have any brothers to kind of, you know, knock me around a little bit and teach me things with that. Um, and I spent a lot of time, honestly, as a kid playing make-believe. And then as I grew up and I was able to get a little more, 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 ability, more mobility, I would spend time exploring outside, uh, hiking and, and being in the woods more than any team sports. When I did attempt to play sports, I quickly found out that no matter how much I imagined that I might be good at something, uh, reality was a very different experience with that. One game I found particularly painful was dodgeball. Anybody else? Anybody else feel that, right, when they call that up? Um, I was both an easy target and a nominal threat. And so I usually found myself uh, beamed and sitting on the sideline, boredly watching everybody else play, 
whenever that game was brought up in PE. I don't even know if they play that in PE anymore. Do they at all? Nah, not much. Probably a good thing with that. Um, the crazy thing is, I kind of feel like I'm living in a cultural dodgeball game right now with our current political climate. It feels like our entire country has run to the sides of various extreme positions and are just hurling political dodgeballs at the other side. And if you try to avoid that, if you say, no, I'm not going to go to one extreme or another, I'm going to stand in the middle, all that ends up happening is you get pummeled from both sides. That there's nowhere to go, there's no middle ground, there's no way to take a stand that doesn't result in one extreme or the other. And so just out of self-preservation, we end up going to one side or the other thinking, hey, I'm just, I'm just going to stay over here and I'm just going to dodge. I'm not going to throw anything back. I'm just going to kind of be over here so I know where the, where the ammo's coming from. And that lasts, that works for a while until you take one you didn't see coming right in the ear. <laughs> and then just out of sheer emotional response, you find yourself just hurling high heaters back at the other side as fast as they're being thrown at you. What is a follower of Jesus supposed to do in a climate like this? What are we as the church, who are we as the church supposed to be in an entrenched and aggravated political discourse like we're in right now? Well, I think the text this morning gives us a very clear way through that. And what we have to understand, though, as we're doing this, is that if the gospel is anything, it is political. If the gospel is anything, it is political. But it's political in a very different way than the world's definition of the word. And as followers of the Jesus way, we're called to be active in our political participation, but not partisan, as we'll discuss here. You see, we live in a time where one writer comments, American politics overall have ceded so much to the logic of warfare. This is a time of factions, of widespread bad faith, not normalized trolling, and the plotting weaponization of everything. And while this situation may feel exceptional for us as Americans, we have to also understand, look, this is, this is the norm. Throughout history, what we're experiencing now is more the norm than the exception. And John gives us some very clear understanding with his imagery how to work through that. So let's pray. Jesus, we want to know your way. Not the way of partisanship. We don't want to operate in the modes and methods and by the means of the world. But we want to be thoroughly entrenched, enamored, enriched by the gospel, by the active gospel imagination. And we need your help because we don't know how to do this. We're taught from the womb how to take sides how to make war, how to make winners and losers. 
and we need a different way. God, our world is dying because we don't have a different way. So give us a glimmer, give us a hope, show us a way this morning that we can begin to practice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the biggest mistakes that we can make as we approach the book of Revelation is that we extract it and make the message some kind of just purely spiritual message. Just some kind of esoteric, theological message. Not a practical message. Not a flesh and blood. Not a political message. But it is. Like I said, the gospel, if anything, is political. I mean, we pray, thy kingdom come. We prayed that earlier. It's a political statement that we do this. But we're going to understand that politics in the kingdom is different than the way we think of politics in the world. And John gives us this in the context of a scripture-soaked imagination. It's an imagination that Revelation, as we said earlier when we set out on this study, Revelation just kind of tells the whole story of all of scripture in a different way. It doesn't tell us anything new. It doesn't tell us anything different. But it tells it in a very new and very different way. Peterson writes this about Revelation, he says, it's Daniel's Gabriel holding Ezekiel's scroll and he commands St. John to preach Moses' revelation and behold Elijah's fire coming down from heaven. It is this recapitulation of the story of all scripture into the words of Revelation. But it's sticky, isn't it? I mean, does anybody, anybody kind of get nervous when I mention politics here? Anybody kind of get Scooch up on your seat a little bit when I say we're going to talk about politics and kind of what, what's going on. See, we have to recognize that none of us can do this 100% accurately. All of us have biases and blind spots, pet affections and ingrained allegiances that we're not even aware of, myself included. If you're looking for an unbiased, unprejudiced, totally objective teacher, I'm not your guy. I'm the product of a specific culture, a specific time. There are things that I accept as true that are not true simply because of where I grew up and the influences that I had on my life. We all have to admit we're prejudiced. We're biased. None of us get it right. Because without that kind of humility, we cannot have a conversation. We can have a fight. We can have a contest. But we cannot have a discussion. And so, we have to start by recognizing none of us can claim total objectivity. None of us can be totally in the right, lacking error. But if we can't talk about this in the church, where do we ever hope to talk about it? If we can't talk about these issues, if we can't talk about the things that are going on in the world, if we can't talk about them here among family, what business do we have as the church 
saying that we have anything to offer to the world. Listen, it is a Gnostic heresy that has plagued the church since its inception that Christianity is somehow just this thing that you resign to your spiritual life. That it's private. That it's all about just your personal moral conduct and don't mention anything else. That is a heresy that has plagued the church from the beginning. The kingdoms, as we're going to see in the text when we read it, says the kingdoms of this world have become kingdoms, culture, politics, economics, entertainment, art, all of them are to come under the rule of Christ. If we can't talk about those things, if we can't engage them here in the church, y'all, what business have we saying we have anything for the world? I mean, we become maybe a nice little self-help group, maybe a nice little therapeutic deal to, like I said, Jesus helps make your life better. I don't have any interest in that. I have zero interest in that. Does following Christ do those things? Absolutely. I do ultimately believe if you want your best life now, yes, come to Jesus. Absolutely. But that is a fruit. That is something that happens when we give ourselves totally over to the will and to the power of Jesus. And that we as a church, as a community, as a colony of heaven in a land of death, learn how to respectfully humbly, lovingly, and grace-filled talk about these things together. The caution is in order. It's absolutely in order. We have to be careful. We are surrounded by landmines, tripwires, hurts, blind spots as we do this. These discussions demand a high degree of humility, grace, love, discernment, and recognizing our own preferences and prejudices, and then laying them down for the sake of the other. I'm not naive, y'all. I told you weeks ago when we started this, I've avoided this book for years. Here's one of the primary reasons, is talking about this. We have had people leave Grace Church Because we have been too political. We have had people leave Grace Church because we are not political enough. It is inevitable that people are going to be offended when we start talking about this. So let's let's just get that out there, all right? If you're not offended by what we talk about in the church when we talk about politics, you're probably not paying close enough attention. All of us have our prejudices and our preferences that are going to come into abrupt, abrasive encounter with the opinions of other people and the Word of God. In a way, I would say if you're not being offended, you're in the wrong place. I'm not here just to affirm everything everybody already knows. Or even what I know. The teaching team will tell you that I make the comment often. 
I am continually offended by Scripture. Deeply offended by what I read in Scripture. Because it is so contrary to my own affections, my own allegiances, and my own associations. And that the primary job that I have and that everybody on the teaching team has is to deal with those things in a godly, grace-filled way. Not to ignore them, not to compromise them, but to be changed by them. And then hopefully we can extend that invitation to everyone else. You see, there are two kinds, there are two examples of the kind of comments I often hear when I start mentioning the words politics and church. The first is, I can't stand it when the church gets political. Don't want to hear anything political. And then the second is, if the church doesn't take a strong issue on, or a strong stand on whatever the issue created by the 24-7 industrial news complex puts out there, and we aren't ending the service by marching down to the courthouse with bullhorns in hands, waving signs, then we're not doing what we're supposed to do. On one hand, hey, don't even, don't even use the P word. On the other hand, it's all about that. Both of those sides are lacking in their understanding. They have a serious misunderstanding. The stay away crowd forgets that the gospel is deeply political. We cannot not be political. Okay, let's just make, let's make it absolutely clear here. We cannot not be political. If we're silent on an issue, that is a way of endorsing it. If we're okay with the status quo, we're endorsing it. You cannot not be political just because you're not talking about it. We are all political one way or another. And as I said earlier, I mean, for heaven's sake, we, we, we pray a political prayer. It's the one that Jesus taught us to pray. It's about food, and it's about, that's economics. It's about kingdoms, and that's government. It's about forgiving and interacting. That's social. I mean, it's, it's all there. And it's not just theory, but it's in practice. It's not just an idea, but it's a real thing with real places and real people. As Christians, we're called to interact and influence all these areas. The church can't help but be political. But before we throw in with any particular group, we have to understand that the church has to be nonpartisan. So whereas the group that wants to avoid politics or, the, or the, the, the taint of politics anywhere, the group that wants to go marching, we have to be careful. Because if we have learned anything from history, and I mean if we have learned anything from history, it is when the church becomes co-opted by any particular partisan party or president any government, any nationality, when the church sees that, hey, we're going to line up perfectly with any flag or denomination or anything like that, it instantly becomes corrupted. 100% of the time, no exceptions. There has never been 
And there never will be a Christian political party. Can't happen. Because the church stands unique. The church is separate, is always called to be engaged, but separate from that. And so, yes, do we involve ourselves in political discussion, in political activities? Absolutely. It's okay to do that and be a Christian. But I want to warn us all, myself included, that it is very, very tempting for those priorities to get switched and for our allegiance to Jesus, to the church, and to each other to become compromised and secondary to those political affiliations, those partisan affiliations with that. We have to understand that we give up our prophetic position when we align ourselves with a political party or a person, a political personality, whether that's a governor, a president, an opposition candidate, an organizer, whoever. When we give our undying allegiance to that kind of thing, we are compromising our allegiance to Jesus. The gospel is political, but it is not partisan. Look, politics is just the word we use to describe the process of how we are constantly deciding what is important as a community, or as a city, as a country, as a world. Polit we do politics every day. We do I mean, Clay, you're doing politics in your house with your daughters. You're deciding. You're, you're interacting, right? What are we going to do? How are we going to do it? What's important to us? What's, on, what's, what's acceptable? What's unacceptable? We do it in our families. We do it in our church. We do it in our schools. We do it in our businesses. We do it in our government. That's, that politics is just the word, is the word that describes that interacting. Partisanship, though. Partisanship is when we weaponize it. Partisanship is when it becomes a zero-sum game. Partisanship is when we start counting winners and losers. Partisanship brings division, not unity. It's that win-at-any-cost mentality. The church is political because the church is alive. But the church can be never sucked into or co-opted co by partisanship. So if we're called, as John puts it in other writings, to be in the world but not of it, how then do we participate? Well, it starts with a clear understanding of how the world works. If we look at how partisanship and government works, it is always through power over and propaganda. You want to know if you're falling into partisanship? Is the power that is being exerted coercive? Is it manipulative? Is it threat, bribe? Is it buy, sell? Is it win, lose? Well, then it's partisan. That's the way the world's power works. Coercion, violence, enforcement. And then it works through propaganda. Trying to constantly sell you on the idea. Sell you on the idea with that. 
Now listen, this can be soft. It's not always, it's not always obvious. We may be in a position where the particular party favors us. Where the particular cultural setup gives us privilege with that. And so we don't feel it. It doesn't feel coercive. It feels right or it feels normal. And the propaganda may just reinforce our already deeply held prejudices and preferences. So it doesn't feel like we're being sold anything. It doesn't feel like it's abnormal with that. But believe me, it's there. That's how the world works. That's what the flesh responds to. Power over and propaganda. The kingdom of God, however, is something totally different. The coronation of our king was on a cross at his execution. The ultimate symbol of power under, of nonviolence, non-coercive, non-threat, non-bribe, non-buy, non-sell, but grace-filled power under, the power of giving of self, of sacrificial entering, sacrificially entering into our situation, of invitation of knocking and waiting to be invited in, not busting down doors with that. You want to know what Jesus' politics are? Read the Gospels. Read how he encountered people. Read how he dealt with the poor and the outcast, the prostitute, the tax collector. And then read how he dealt with the religious and the political, the people with governmental powers. Power, the, the politics of Jesus are pretty obvious if we can somehow take our own prejudicial lens off for just a minute to glimpse it. And instead of propaganda, instead of trying to constantly sell something, we engage in prophetic witness. Now, when I use the word prophecy or, or prophetic, that can, you know, you get the picture of the long, the robe and the long beard and the stick and the you're going to hell, you know, uh, kind of image, but that's rarely the case. That's actually just the extreme. Prophetic witness is when we act in our communities according to our principles. Not just spoken, but enacted. When we welcome the refugee, when we share with the poor, when we associate with the outcast, when we make welcome space for those who are marginalized, when we share with one another, when we don't try to gloss over suffering, that's prophetic witness, y'all. That's not propaganda, that's life. That's real, that's true. That's not just a sales job, that's who we are. That's the way of the gospel. It's not propaganda, but prophetic witness. The radical power of the gospel is always and only through power under and prophetic witness. 
And this means disciplining ourselves not to react as the world reacts, but to instead respond in the way as demonstrated by Jesus. And we're going to see how the ultimate victory of Jesus as described in the text helps us do this. But the bottom line is we have to reject every form of power over and propaganda, of coercion and violence, and instead discipline ourselves to walking in power under with prophetic witness. Now I'm finally going to get into the text. I know you've been waiting for me to do that. And it's a huge chunk of text, so it's not going to be on the screen. It's actually five chapters. Now, you got to remember, if you weren't here when we said this, Revelation wasn't necessarily written down to be read as we read. It wasn't... They, they, John didn't get a call from his editor to write this thing down and put it in a book and put it on shelves in a bookstore where people could pick it up and in the comfort of their individual homes, open it up and read the text. It was never intended to be read that way or encountered that way. It was written down to be set and to be publicly proclaimed. And in a way, it's, it's kind of, um, it's a little bit of guerrilla theater. It was meant to be enacted in a way as it read. It was meant to stimulate the imagination. It was meant to be read all at one chunk. So even though we're going to hear a lot of it today, we're not hearing all of it. It was meant to be all heard at one setting with that. So I want you to just listen. I want you to let your imaginations go. I want you to conjure up the images as I read them. I want you to let the emotions sink into you as I do this. But I also want you to do this. On another level, I want you to be thinking... Where are the affections of the characters in this story? Where are the allegiances of the people in this story? And who are they associating with as we go through this? And I will stop a couple times because there's a couple things in here that have just culturally been so um, emphasized that they do need a little bit of emphasis on that. So we're starting in chapter 10. If you want to read along in your Bible, that's great. Otherwise, listen. <clears throat> I saw another powerful angel come down out of heaven wrapped in a cloud. There was a rainbow over his head. His face was sun radiant. His legs a pillar of fire. He had a small book open in his hand. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Then he called out thunderously, a lion roar. When he called out, the seven thunders called back. When the seven thunders spoke, I started to write it all down. But a voice out of heaven stopped me saying, seal with silence the seven thunders. Don't write a word. Then the angel I saw astride the sea and land lifted his right hand to heaven and swore by the one living forever and ever who created heaven and everything in it, earth and everything in it, sea and everything in it. The time was up. That when the seventh angel, angel blew his trumpet, which was he was about to do, the mystery of God, all the plans he had revealed to his servants, the prophets, would be completed. The voice out of heaven spoke to me again, Go, take the book held open in the hand of the angel astride the sea and the earth. I went up to the angel and said, Give me the book. He said, Take it, then eat it. It will taste sweet like honey, but turn sour in your stomach. I took the little book from the angel's hand, and it was sweet honey in my mouth, but when I swallowed it, my stomach curdled 
Then I was told you must go back and prophesy against over the many people and nations and languages and kings. And just as an aside here, this idea is so illustrative of how often this works. We sit here in church and we receive the word of God and it is sweet to us. It is encouraging to us. It is life-giving to us. And then when we go and we try to present that into the world, the world turns against us. It becomes bitter. It becomes soured as it encounters the reality outside of here. But let's go on. Chapter 11. I was given a stick for a measuring rod and told, get up and measure God's temple and altar and everyone worshiping in it. Exclude the outside court. Don't measure it. It's been, handled, it's been handed over to non-Jewish outsiders. They'll desecrate the holy city for 42 months. Meanwhile, I'll provide two witnesses. Now, the two witnesses here, most commentators agree, are Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah show up all the time. They're the, they're the, the yin and the yang, if you will, of law and prophets. The, the moral code and the enacted living with that. Dressed in sackcloth, they'll prophesy for 1,260 days. They are the two olive trees, the two lampstands standing at attention before God on earth. If anyone tries to hurt them, a blast of fire from their mouths will incinerate them, burn them to a crisp just like that. They'll have power to seal the sky so that it doesn't rain for the time of their prophesying. Power to turn rivers and springs to blood. Power to hit the earth with any and every disaster as often as they want. When they've completed their witness, the beasts from the abyss will emerge and fight them, conquer and kill them, leaving their corpses exposed on the streets of the great city, spiritually called Sodom and Gomorrah, the same city where the master was crucified. For three and a half days, they'll be there, exposed, preventing from, prevented from getting a decent burial. Stared at by the curious from all over the world, these people will cheer at the spectacle, shouting good riddance and calling for a celebration. For these two prophets pricked the conscience of all the people on earth, made it impossible for them to enjoy their sins. Then after three and a half days, the living spirit of God will enter them. They're on their feet and all those gloating spectators will be scared to death. I heard a strong voice out of heaven calling, come up here. And up they went to heaven, wrapped in a cloud, their enemies watching it all. At that moment, there was a gigantic earthquake. A tenth of the city fell to ruin. 7,000 people perished in the earthquake. The rest frightened to the core of their being, frightened into giving honor to the God of heaven. The second doom is past. The third doom is coming right on its heels. A seventh angel trumpeted. A crescendo of voices in heaven sang out, The kingdom of this world is now the kingdom of our God and his Messiah. He will rule forever and ever. And this, friends, is the crescendo of all of Revelation. This is the telos of all creation. This is the reason we are created. This is the where we are going throughout history is towards this proclamation and reality. And ultimately, this is the promise that allows us to endure this ancient future kingdom coming, this now but not yet time, is knowing that this time is real, is happening, and will happen. The 24 elders, seated before God on their thrones, fell to their knees, worshipped and sang, We thank you, O God, sovereign, strong, who is and was. 
You took your great power. You took over, reigned. The angry nations now get a taste of your anger. The time has come to judge the dead, to reward your servants, all prophets and saints. Reward small and great who fear your name and destroy the destroyers of earth. The doors of God's temple in heaven flew open and the Ark of the Covenant was clearly seen, surrounded by flashes of lightning, loud shouts, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a fierce hailstorm. Thus ends chapter 11. Going into chapter 12, all of a sudden we get into Christmas. But it's not necessarily the Christmas story as you've ever heard it told before. But this is the story of Jesus' birth told in a different way. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman dressed in all sunlight, standing on the moon and crowned with 12 stars. She was giving birth to a child and cried out in pain of childbirth. Then another sign alongside the first, a huge and fiery dragon. It had seven heads with ten horns, a crown on each of the seven heads. With one flick of its tail, it knocked down a third of the stars from the sky and dumped them on earth. The dragon crouched before the woman in childbirth, poised to eat up the child when it came. The woman gave birth to a son who will shepherd all nations with an iron rod. Her son was seized and placed safely before, the th- before God on his throne. The woman herself escaped to the desert to a place safely prepared by God. All comforts provided her for 1,260 days. War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but they were no match for Michael. He cleared them out of heaven, not a sign of them left. The great dragon, ancient serpent, the one called devil and Satan, the one who led the whole army astray, thrown out, and all his angels thrown out with him, thrown down to earth. Then I heard a strong voice out of heaven saying, salvation and power are established, kingdom of our God, authority and Messiah, the accuser of our brothers and sisters thrown out, who accused them day and night before God. They defeated them through the blood of the lamb and the bold word of their witness. They weren't in love with themselves. They were willing to die for Christ. So rejoice, O heavens, and all who live there, but doomed to the earth and the sea. For the devil's come down on you with both feet. He's had such a great fall. He's wild and ranging with anger. He hasn't much time and he knows it. When the dragon saw he'd been thrown to, ch- to earth, he went after the woman who'd given birth to the man-child. The woman was given wings of a great eagle, eagle to fly to a place in the desert and be kept safe in safety and comfort for a time and times and time a half, safe and sound from the serpent. The serpent vomited a river of water to swamp and drown her, but the earth came to help her, swallowing the water. The dragon spewed from its mouth. Helpless with rage, the dragon raged at the woman, then went off to make war on the rest of her children, the children who keep God's command, who hold firm to the witness of Jesus And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. I saw a beast rising from the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads. On each horn a crown. On each of the head inscribed with a blasphemous name. The beast I saw looked like a leopard with bear's paws and a lion's mouth. The dragon turned over its power to it, its throne and great authority. One of the beast's heads looked as if it had been struck by a death blow and then healed. Now, for us, we just see the imagination of this, but we have to understand that John is naming names here. Most commentators believe that he is either talking here about Nero or Domitian, depending on when you date the writing of this book, but he is referring specifically to the emperor of Rome with this. And again, our 
are addressing and engaging with culture is not abstract. It is dealing with real personalities in real ways. The whole earth was agog, gaping at the beast. They worshipped the dragon who gave the beast authority, and they worshipped the beast, exclaiming, there's never been anything like the beast. No one would dare go to war with the beast. The beast had a loud mouth, boastful and blasphemous. It could do anything it wanted for 42 months. It yelled blasphemies against God, blasphemed his nature, blasphemed his church, especially those already dwelling with God in heaven. It was permitted to make war on God's holy people and conquer them. It held absolute sway over all tribes and peoples, tongues and races. Everyone on earth whose name was not written from the world's foundation in the slaughtered lamb's book of life will worship the beast. Are you listening to this? They've made their bed, now they must lie in it. Anyone marked for prison goes straight away to prison. Anyone pulling a sword goes down by the sword. Meanwhile, God's holy people passionately and faithfully stand there ground. I saw another beast rising out of the ground. It had two horns like a lamb, but sounded like a dragon when it spoke. It was a puppet of the first beast, made earth and everyone in it worship the first beast, which had been healed of its death blow. The second beast worked magical signs, dazzling people by making fire come down from heaven. It used the magic it got from the beast to dupe the earth dwellers, getting them to make an image of the beast and receive the death blow that had received a death blow and lived. It was able to animate the image of the beast so that it talked and then arranged that anyone not worshiping the beast would be killed. It forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to have a mark on the right hand and forehead. Without the mark of the name of the beast or the number of its name, it was impossible to buy or sell anything. Solve a riddle. Put your heads together and figure out the meaning of the number of the beast. It's a human number, six. Six, six. Now again, anybody the hair on the back of your neck kind of stand up (laughs) when you hear the mark of the beast and the 666 and you can't buy and sell, right? Well, here's the deal. 666 is actually pretty easy to figure out. So seven is the number of of perfection. In in Hebrew thought, and in ancient thought, many cultures, seven is the number of perfection. And any time you repeated something three times was to establish its permanence or its excellency, or its ascendancy. So if you said 777, that's absolute perfection in every way. Now, some some early Christian leaders tried to go a little bit above that and called Jesus 888, like one number above perfection with that. But what John is clearly saying here is that the beast never really gets there. And, And what was looked at almost as the worst, was being just below perfection, having that mar, that stain, that incapacity. 666 represents the height of humanness. We're not perfect. We're all falling. And it is established by thrice repeating it with that. But we'll talk more about the mark in just a minute. But don't be scared of the number. I saw, it took my breath away, the Lamb standing on the Mount Zion, 144,000 standing there with Him, His name and the name of His Father inscribed on their foreheads. And I heard a voice out of heaven, the sound like a cataract, like a crash of thunder. And then I heard music, harp music, and the harpist singing a new song before the throne and the four animals and the elders. Only the 144,000 could learn to sing the song. They were brought from earth, lived without compromise, virgin, fresh before God. 
Wherever the lamb went, they followed. They were brought from humankind, first fruits of the harvest of God and the lamb. Not a false word in their mouths, a perfect offering. I saw another angel soaring in middle heaven. He had an eternal message to preach to all who were still on earth, every nation and tribe, every tongue and people. He preached in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. His hour of judgment has come. Worship the maker of heaven and earth, salt sea and fresh water. A second angel followed calling out, ruined, ruined, great Babylon, ruined. She has made all the nations drunk with the wine of her whoring. A third angel followed, shouting, Warning! If anyone worships the beast and its image and takes the mark on its forehead or hand, that person will drink the wine of God's wrath, prepared unmixed in his chalice of anger, and suffer torment from fire and brimstone in the presence of his holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. So what was the mark? What is the mark of the beast with that? Well, again, it, here metaphorically, it's a physical mark, but that's not, that's not really what it represents. What it represents is exactly what we talked about earlier. The mark of the beast is to take on the, the ethos, the means, the mode, the spirit of the way the world does things. It is for us as the church to operate by buying and selling. It is for us, the church, to operate by coercive power, violence, threat, bribe. It is for us, the church, to be engaged, instead of prophetic witness, in propaganda. Come, live your best life now. Let Jesus pimp your life out. Get thee to church or burn in hell forever. Propaganda, threat, bribe, coercion, power over. That's the mark of the beast, y'all. That's what takes the church of God, and I say this with all fear and trembling, but what the prophets say, turn it into a synagogue of Satan. We cannot allow that to happen here. We don't, have any other, we don't have any control over it for anybody else, but we do have control over it here. We cannot operate with the mark of the beast in this church. Smoke from the torment will rise after age. No respite for those who worship the beast in its image, who make the mark of its name. Meanwhile, the saints stand passionately patient Keeping God's command, staying faithful to Jesus. I heard a voice out of heaven, write this. Blessed are those who die in the master from now on. How blessed you die that way. Yes, says the Spirit, and blessed rest from their hard, hard work. None of what they have done is wasted. God blesses them for it all in the end. I looked up. I caught my breath. A white cloud and one like the Son of Man sitting on it. He wore a gold crown and held a sharp sickle. Another angel came down out of the temple shouting to the cloud and throne, Swing your sickle and reap. It's harvest time. Earth's harvest is ripe for reaping. The cloud enthroned gave a mighty sweep of his sickle, began harvesting earth in a stroke. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven. He also had a sharp sickle. Yet another angel, and then one char in charge of tending the fire, came from the altar. He thundered to the angel who held the sharp sickle, Swing your sharp sickle. The harvest earth's 
Harvest earth's vineyard. The grapes are bursting with, bursting with ripeness. The angel swung his sickle, harvested earth's vintage, heaves it into the wine press, the giant wine press of God's wrath. The wine press was outside the city. As the vintage was trodden, the blood poured from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle, a river of blood for 200 miles. Look, nobody said this is going to be easy. More often than not, it's going to feel like when we walk out of this church, we're going to be put back into the middle of that giant dodgeball game, getting pummeled from both sides. To survive that, and not just to survive, but to truly remain faithful, we need to understand who we really are and where we really stand. And we need to know the same thing about Jesus. If we really listen to this text, we get a clear sense that Jesus, the faithful witnesses, the angels, and all who endure demonstrate a remarkable lack of anxiety about the situation they're in. Do they suffer? Yes. Do they have to endure persecution? Yes. Do some of them die? Yes. But they are not anxious about it because they are properly oriented. They know where Jesus stands. They know who Jesus is. They know who they are as a result of that. Grace Church, we are not going to survive if we don't likewise really know. If we don't likewise really know who Jesus is and where Jesus stands. And then from that, understand where he has placed us. Not on one side or the other of some partisan dodgeball game but instead set us apart as a colony of life in a land of death where politics is practiced in its most life-giving, humble, truth-telling, transparent, preferring the other way. That is where he has placed us. That is who he has called us to be. And there is no other way to survive. The gospel is political, but it is not partisan. And it is crucial that we understand the difference. Our primary participation is through power under and prophetic witness. And faithfulness is a matter of correctly orienting ourselves to Jesus we cannot let the church become just like the rest of the world. Just another gem for a giant dodgeball game. Together, we have to decide, do we really believe the gospel has power without resorting to using power over 
and propaganda. That practicing power under and prophetic witness is crucial to following Jesus and to being an uncompromised church. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. And we're going to take communion. Communion is a spiritual act, yes, but it's also a political act. You can't get away from it. When Jesus invited women and lepers and and tax collectors and outcasts to his table, that was a political act. It was a political act of subversion against the powers of coercion and propaganda. That's what we do here. We all share from this table. There is no ranking here. No one gets preferential treatment. Nobody gets to sit at, the, sit at the head and other people at the feet. Jesus is the head of this table. All the rest of us are at his feet. He is the one who is served and who serves. This is a practical way to orient ourselves to the reality of the gospel and the politics of the gospel is to come to this table humbly without demand, without earning it, and to receive. To receive what has been provided to us by the sacrifice of the Lamb. To understand that this is a demonstration of both faithful witness and sacrificial power under Practice it. We have to practice it. We have to be reminded. It's so easy to lose sight and to go back to the world's ways. Don't do it. Come up here today and take part in this table and receive. Let yourself be served by God. Let yourself be witnessed to by Jesus at this table. And return that praise to God in prayer and in song in the offering of what you have freely, without coercion. It's not demanded of you. We don't tax you. It's not required. Nobody tracks it. It's freely offered. It is giving and receiving, not buying and selling. So practice these things of the kingdom and the politics of the gospel today here. Let's figure out how to do it here. Then we'll know how to engage with the world. Thank you for being here this morning.